0: Welcome to the Ikigai Stories Podcast. I'm Sam Yushio. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. This guest is Josh Monitou, and it's really hard to define Josh, so I'll just start by saying he's a badass. Artist, cancer survivor, musician, inspiration. Uh, Josh is very humble. He is too humble. Uh, Despite selling art in galleries, he doesn't fully accept the title of artist. And maybe that's because he's more than an artist. He's an amazing human being that everyone, that we can all learn from. So at 31 years old, Josh was diagnosed with cancer. He beat it. It punched back. He came back even stronger. And he's roughly eight years into a trial drug that's meant to give cancer patients about six to eight months. He is the record holder in Seattle and one of the longest living patients in the world on this drug. But what's really amazing and inspiring and just incredible about Josh is that that doesn't define him. Throughout that journey, he left a job in manufacturing to pursue his passion in art. And his art doesn't showcase his struggle. It celebrates humanity. Uh, he makes art that's designed to make people smile and laugh. And he leverages his years, a decade, over a decade worth of career spent in manufacturing to now improve the creation process of his art by leveraging these lean techniques that he learned uh, in manufacturing planes. Uh, you know, Josh reminds us and states that time is a commodity, and that a lot of life is taken too seriously. So if you find yourself ever, now or ever, in a tough spot, and you need a boost to get out of it, then Joshua's story will lift you out. He puts a lot of things in perspective uh, in a very just simple but impactful way. Uh, I like to say that life is, is like a journey. It's not a destination. And Josh Monitou epitomizes the very best in that idea. Uh, so please enjoy this episode, Ikigai Stories number three, with Josh Monitou, artist, cancer survivor, and the ultimate badass. Well, Josh, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. A-
0: absolutely, absolutely. So I figured we'd start off by just talking first about your art.
1: Sure. Um, I should start off by saying that uh, I am am asked this question sometimes and I feel like I should have like a really fast, like an elevator speech on what my art is about and I do not have that Um, because uh, I don't, It, it took me a long time to see myself as an artist in the first place and so... Um, being able to technically describe it as something that's a little beyond my reach also because my art I feel like I'm in a constant state of evolution and so I'm never just doing one thing you know Um, so I just say that right now my art is a lot of uh, like colored paper and collage work uh, to create scenes of um, around Seattle like you know stuff that tourists like to see in Seattle Pike mm-hmm. Place Market the space needle I'm kind of like a chronic um, depictor of the space needle I would say
0: why the space needle
1: um, the, I love it I and also I just I did love Seattle I grew up in Kent and um, when I was a kid and we would come up into Seattle it well it would always be an occasion you know um, and it wasn't often and so um, I kind of look at Seattle, even though I live in Wallingford now and, you know, I'm routinely down at the Pike Place Market to buy noodles at De Laurenti, um, I still see Seattle like a tourist does or like huh. through my child eyes and, the you know, the cool tourist stuff is just, you know, I, I can hardly walk by the space, you Needle know, without taking a picture of it. Really? Yeah. I wow. just, I just, I don't know what it is. It's just so Seattle.
0: Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and so, yeah, so I, I just like to make art depicting scenes from Seattle and um, with using colored paper. And uh, I, I kind of have a, a process that I see because I, I don't uh, have a lot of um, natural artistic talent. I would say I'm more of a creative person than an artistic person. Um, and so for me, I see uh, my method of art production as a workaround to, to get around this uh, obstacle in my way of not being able to, like, I can't draw a picture in a sketchbook, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I can't, I'm not a very good painter, you know? And so um, I use creativity to work around that roadblock and my, my art is sort of like the, what, what comes out on the other end of my creative workarounds.
0: Yeah. So what's the what's the difference between artist and creative
1: well um this is just uh maybe there's no difference and maybe I'm just as artistic as any other artist but it's just the way that I see myself and you know maybe I should uh, see myself as an artist you know instead of a creative but um, I, I guess in my mind the difference is that an artist um you know, like I'm sure you've known people who can sit down to a sketch pad or something like that and like draw a portrait of you or draw something very, you know, where you look at it and you're like, oh, look, it's a whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and they just have a natural ability to understand light and shade and to work a pencil. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say that, or, 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 you know, like a painter can just like stand in front of a clean canvas, you know, with their palette of colors and create something that's recognizable as something. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I I just can't do that i mean I, I just I'm okay at drawing, but it's not anywhere near like what I would see as an artist yeah. um, and as as a creative I just see it as a, as as a creative, I would say it's more like um finding the workarounds and the clever solutions to get around that inability of that I see is you know not being able to draw
0: yeah so how did you? How did you go, well, so creative solutions, so the, you had this creativity inside of you, how did you, how did you find the collage as the platform to demonstrate that creativity?
1: Um, so, wait, ask me that question one more time.
0: Well, so if, so if you identify yourself as a creative, mm-hmm. right? So you're saying, I feel like I am a creative, but maybe I don't feel like I'm an artist.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you came up with a workaround to, to display that creativity mm-hmm. in collage, in a collage format. How did you find the collage as the platform to showcase okay. your creativity?
1: Um, I would say that it was mostly when I uh, discovered the usefulness of a projector. Okay. Um okay. so the the projector is sort of like w- w- I would say my number one tool in being able to do this and um my girlfriend and I uh we bought this uh like a corner booth like a diner corner booth um off of eBay um I don't know 6 years ago or so and uh it's like a vintage 1948 Just exactly like it is in your imagination, red with the white piping, Mm -hmm. the whole nine. Mm -hmm. And it arrived in a big giant crate, and I uncrated it in a garage that I had at the time and had all of this crate wood sitting in my garage and couldn't just bust it up and throw it in the dumpster. And I had all of these kind of ideas floating around in my head about, um, you know, making art or whatever. And so, I just started hacking it up into smaller pieces, and I bought myself a uh, like an old school 3M, you know, overhead projector like your math teacher uses with yeah. overhead transparency slides, yeah. and I started uh, to use that to, to project images up onto the wood, and then you know work off of the projection. So, yeah, and then that that just kind of like that, that's, that's been that's been yeah, it's, it's snowballed. It's yeah. been an evolving process, and, yeah. um the process is in a constant state of evolution, I would say, but. What
0: was the first collage, do
1: you remember? The first collage I did was probably, it was probably a picture of my niece, Lily, mm-hmm. um, when she was probably four years old. And I was over at my brother's house and I was just taking pictures of his kids because I wanted to do a portrait. Yeah. And uh, this one, picture that I took of her just happened to work out right with the lighting because with using the projector, a picture kind of has to have good, or the right kind of lighting to have good contrast where there's, you know, dark darks and light lights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used um, my first, that first piece was using um, newspaper, So it was like some New York Times and some Seattle Times and just uh, some newspapers that I just, you know, But got at the grocery store, Mm -hmm. and I would go through the papers and cut out, uh, you know, sections of pictures or graphics or ads that were, you know, dark, tinted, and put those in a pile. And then um, the sections of the newspaper that don't have any print on them at all, that are just blank newsprint, and then. I used uh, white paper. So the, the the key to doing the collage is the picture has to be broken down into solid black, solid gray and solid white. Okay. You know, it's it's called uh, posterizing. Yeah. Um you can imagine the classic um Obama hope poster right. um is a posterized image. Yeah. Um so there's no gradients. So uh, once I took the portrait of Lily and uh, got it into that posterized format, then it's just a matter of choosing what you're going to put in for the Three values. So I used blank white paper for the white, um, newsprint, blank unprinted newsprint out of the newspaper for the gray, Mm -hmm. and then uh, like dark patches of of newspaper, you know, cut out of a, you know, like if there's a picture of, you know, a Seahawk or something like that, and, you know, part of his jersey is in the shadow, I cut out that shadowed portion, you know, or for any picture throughout the newspaper, and then um, with the projected image. You know, organized it into the portrait, but yeah, okay. that, that, was, that was my first one.
0: And how? So how has it evolved? Or, I, I well, I, I mean, it, it's evolved at least one iteration. I don't know if there are multiple mm-hmm. iterations because the piece that I saw was with the stranger, and I believe it was from only one one um, episode or one weekly or mm-hmm. whatever those are called of the stranger. So are there has it from that initial collage of Lily? to what you're doing currently mm-hmm. and you, in between those two spaces? Are there multiple iterations, or what does that um, evolution look like?
1: Well, uh, I started out with the newspaper, like I said. this I think it was the Seattle Times or the New York Times. Um, and then from there, the obvious next step was The Stranger for me, because it's free, and it's mm-hmm. very colorful. Yeah. Um, and, and then I used a uh, like in style magazine or something like that in yeah. in touch or in style magazine um, that I got from somebody that had a bunch of issues and I did basically the same exact process um, and I made a couple of those um, and then and then started getting into um, like colored paper. Um, if you go to the most art stores have a section towards the back where their colored paper is and they'll usually have, on racks or on a wall or something, um, like a shelf of dowels with uh, printed textured, you know, uh, paper of all sorts of colors and patterns, and so I'll try to incorporate um, those sorts of patterns and stuff like that into uh, the gray in the pieces that I'm using, you know, yeah. like if, if you like, I was mentioning breaking it down into black, gray, and white. Yeah, the the gray is where all of the color and everything goes into it. So okay. I'll use that a lot of that patterned paper at the craft store for the gray. Okay. Um, and then I also was working with um, aluminum cans, mostly beer cans. Um, I did a, I did a few pieces with that, um, kind of using the color of in the cans as the gray and uh, you know. Cutting the cans into one-inch squares and then uh, breaking the the uh, art piece down into you know one-inch squares and then mm-hmm. just kind of like doing it one-inch square at a time. In a, a complex image. Um, you know, if you blow it up to a, like the size of a, a piece of art that you would hang on your wall, mm-hmm. and then you um, draw out the design based on the projection onto the art piece, and then you grid it out into one-inch squares. Each square has very minimal detail, even though the whole thing is maximally detailed. Right. But the square is not very much detail in it at all. Yeah. And so if you, you know, break a piece down into just one inch squares, it's, you know, very boring. Yeah. But um it's boring to do, I should say, to to create it, um, but it creates a really cool effect. It turns out, you know, where the color of the can is coming through, and it's very um, bright and vivid because you know, like Fremont Brewing has these you know really brilliant colors, or or any number of beer cans really. But um, yeah, Fremont was the first one that I did a piece that was strictly of that brand, and they actually donated about 200 empty. Cans, you know, oh, yeah. from the factory without tops, yeah, um, so that I could make an art piece out of them. But
0: which cans were you using? Do you remember, or was um, it just all of them? It
1: was a bunch of them. I it yeah. was the Imperial IPA, the Inner Urban IPA, um, the summer, the summer the, ale, or the, whatever it the is. The yellow,
0: the red, the basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bl- <laughs> the it, blue? Was, it was like a blue, yeah. The green. Universal
1: pale-, pale Ale. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. The universal i think that's universal it. Yeah. yeah yeah um so yeah i just try to um you know look around at you know things in life that you know i i try to like think about the things that people are throwing away you know mm-hmm. on a regular basis that have color in them or texture or yeah. you know to try to see what i could um you know re- repurpose yeah um yeah so, yeah. So, uh, is it, the
0: process an actual, do, do, is the actual, me- the mechanics of the process, do you focus on one inch at a time? Is that how you, well, for the, you grid it out in that for way? for
1: the, I mean, it, it's so, um, for the, like I've done, I would say that I would call them like gridded pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of my pieces are based on grids. Um, it's just something that I was kind of trying out. Um, I, I've done several pieces uh, gridded like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really time-consuming to do, so yeah. I don't do it too much anymore. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I would never do another gridded piece, but um, but most of the art that I do is not gridded out. Okay. But you know, I I, I I did do a few pieces like that. All the beer can pieces are pretty much gridded.
0: So let's let's talk about the actual. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the mechanics of the piece. So mm-hmm. how do you act? How do you decide? Besides the Space Needle, because mm-hmm. the Space Needle has a special place. <laughs> How do you decide what you're going to, who the collage is going to represent or what it's going to represent if
1: mm-hmm. it's not the Space Needle? Well, I I would say that like the Seattle scenes that I've been doing recently um, are recent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before I was kind of obsessed with doing Seattle scenes, it was portraits. Mm-hmm. And mostly I would just think of... Um, you know, just what I what I would want to hang on my wall, or the things that I think are cool, or whatever. You know, so yeah. um, I did a piece uh, that's a picture from Pulp Fiction of um, Marcellus Wallace, the character Marcellus Wallace, and Butch, the Bruce Willis character. Um, just have you seen Pulp Fiction? Oh, yeah. Just when they are uh, they get to go into that pawn shop, and the guy at the counter knocks them out. Then they wake up with ball gags. And the the picture is just when they're first waking up and uh I, I I just I just love it. I just love, you know, kind of those funky images and yeah. you know so I I guess the answer to your question is um mostly I, I pick things that I think people will just like. Yeah. Pick things that just, you know, would make somebody, you know, smile or laugh yeah. or, you know, sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's the, the the images that
0: I saw, and I so you've got a you've got a lot of them on your website, maybe maybe all of them on your website. But, um, you know, I saw Christopher Walken, mm. Eminem, Bruce Lee. I,
1: I haven't um, done an Eminem one.
0: Oh, there was an Eminem. No. Who was it then?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I. I actually haven't added uh, pictures to my website. Marshall Marshall
0: Mathers. No. <laughs> uh, I did a piece. Well, this is not on the website. This is what I saw at
1: the coffee shop. Oh, at the coffee shop
0: but if you haven't done an M&M then it wasn't an m M&M.
1: and I'm trying to think of what was hanging there.
0: There was Christopher Walken for sure. Mm-hmm. There was Bruce Will or uh Bruce Lee for sure. There was
1: Data from Star Trek. Yes. Mhm.
0: And I think there were two more but I
1: can't recall.
0: I could have sworn there was an M&M, but
1: M&M would be a good one. That's yeah, a good idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um so are there are there categories that you're shooting for so that you've got you've got a seahawks kind of genre you've got a like a pop culture
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: type genre are there other categories that you have
1: um not really i I did um a Bernie Sanders portrait mm-hmm. um, but i I'm not sure that I would do another politician yeah you know yeah. um I don't know. I just try to do whatever I think is kind of a striking image. You know, I just yeah. uh, I don't. I'm not necessarily after you know doing musicians or just doing actors or something like yeah. that. It's just, um, it just whatever strikes me. And I, and I I tend not to plan out like uh, more than one piece in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because I'm just not that organized. Um, you know, I mostly I'll I'll finish a piece and then as I'm finishing it then I'll my brain will start to cycle through and you know think of what what's the next piece gonna be And if there's too big of a lag between finishing a piece and starting the next piece then I dip into this really dark depression <laughs> so I have to keep pieces you know going one right after the other or yeah. uh, or it's ugly
0: how long does it take you to, to do a piece typically
1: um I, I can get a piece done now in about I would say maybe like four and a half days. Okay, Yeah. Which is, I'm always in a process of uh, trimming down, you know, um, I I have a career of warehouse work, and Mm -hmm. it was always, uh, you know, these little mundane tasks that should drive a person crazy, but I always found that I was really good at them, and I really kind of, you know, liked taking this bin of 50,000 rivets you know, and putting them in little bags of 10. Yeah. You know, with a little <laughs> label in there that has the part number on it. And, you know, just doing that for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Um, and also of taking this mundane task that I would be assigned to and then finding a way to trim down, you know, like the number of movements that I make, you know, and, and really like, like tighten up the process. And so I apply those same sorts of principles to my art making. Um, And so, you know, I'm constantly looking for shortcuts that I can take to cut the process down. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I've made a lot of progress, you know, in that. Um, But there's tons of room to to, to make it even more, you know, trimmed down and organized. I'm not as organized as I possibly could be. There's tons of room, yeah. you know, to, to trim it down and get really um, lean, I, I think, is the corporate yeah. term for, yeah. uh, you know, cutting down the movements and cutting down the, any kind of, like, fat on the process. Right,
0: right. But it's on your radar. So you're definitely to, you're constantly trying to get more efficient in your process of
1: yeah, creating I, art. Yeah, I think that I'm. I try to do it, but also it's kind of a default process. You know, yeah. just something that kind of just happens because you know my, my goal is to just be smoother at making this. Yeah. You know, and as I. As I have uh, trimmed down the process and gotten it tighter, I've been able to you know like. Have pieces with a lot more detail in them, or mm. you know, do things that might be a little bit more time-consuming in the mm. in the end result, rather than spending all the time, um, you know, assembling or whatever it is. Yeah, does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it
0: does make sense. So okay. where, well, you've you've alluded to this a little bit, but where where does that come from? Does it come from your Prior work does it is that something like you can reflect back, like as a kid, you were, you know, taking the Hot Wheels and lining <laughs> them up all in the same direction, or?
1: No, I mean, I. The, the thing is, I'm a very disorganized person by nature. I am I'm cluttery. Um, I would say that I, I probably. There's probably like a bizarro version of me in the one universe over. That is a total and complete hoarder, you know. That has newspapers stacked to the ceiling of the apartment, um, and I, I feel an attachment to that to that person, and I I, I could possibly become that. But um, so so like a deep sense of organization isn't in me, but I like organization and I like being organized. I have a hard time maintaining it though. Um, but I would say that the tendency to lean my process definitely comes from all my warehouse work. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and it does have to be sort of, uh, it's, it's like a conscious decision I make to apply those principles into my artwork. It's not something that just automatically happens. I, I'm, Well, I guess I said one minute ago that it is something that automatically happens, so I guess I should clarify that. Um, this is probably a stupid example, but take my sock drawer, mm-hmm. for instance, at home, right? So my sock drawer used to be, um, you know, it's got like my uh, under tank tops, some people refer to them as wife beaters, but that's probably not a PC term. Um, and underwear and socks. And it was just kind of like a chaotic mess. And I thought to myself, you know, if this was my job, and it wasn't socks and underwear, it was, you know, whatever I was using at my job. You know, like plastic bags and, you know, part number labels and, you know... um, uh, checklist of parts that I'm picking, for instance, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want it to just be scattered across my, you know, work cart. I would want these things to be, you know, yeah. p- precisely organized in a way that I could just reach out and grab it without even looking. Yeah. And I, uh, I just decided one day, like, I wonder if it would, be, you know, how it would benefit me to apply these principles into my sock drawer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it wasn't like this big project or anything like that. I just, you know, folded my stuff a different way. And yeah. I've been using that organizational process ever since. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, I guess the answer to your question is um, just from my working in warehouses and, yeah. you know, constantly uh, having managers, you know, encourage us to lean down processes and yeah. lean is like this buzzword, Right. you know, right? Um, yeah. I, it, I, I was working at Boeing, actually, and another thing they would do, they would call it 5S, mm-hmm. which, I don't know, are you familiar with mm-hmm. 5S? No. I know that uh, at Starbucks, I think they do 5S. I think they call it the same thing, too. But it's just, um, it's a basic principle of kind of uh, being clean and organized and decluttering. So um, at Boeing, 5S is such a... Uh, thing that it's almost just a joke to the employees, and yeah. nobody wants to think about it. You know, it's like, they're forced to think about it, but really the principles are kind of useful, and mm-hmm. so... Do you yeah. remember what the 5Ss are? Um, this is a funny question, because I think that I can remember what the 5Ss are, but if you go around Boeing, even though you're having 5S meetings once a week, and yeah. it's just like, like pounded down everybody's throat constantly, yeah. Yeah. that uh, hardly anybody can name the 5Ss, <laughs> but let's see if I can do it. It's uh, sweeping... Sorting, standardize, um, sweep, sort, standardize, self-discipline, and shit. <laughs> no, I. I don't. I don't remember what the fifth one is. Four, it, out, of, four out of five is it, about. It'll come to me. Yeah. No one can name them though.
0: There are five S's in um, child rearing. Also. Okay. And it's pretty similar. I, I don't think I could knock out five of them, but there, are, there are five. I, I, if you started naming off those five S's, and mm-hmm. there was some parallel between child rearing, like raising an infant, mm-hmm. like shush, shushing and swaying, <laughs> and I would have been a little bit concerned about about uh, about the aircraft manufacturer up north. So, can you talk about what you were doing there, and just that, like that mm-hmm. that because you've talked a little bit about how it impacted you, but can you talk about just what, what you're doing and mm-hmm. um, your role at in manufacturing or mowing sure. in particular?
1: Um, yeah, so I uh, it was just warehouse work. Um, I guess I got hired when I was 19. I'm 41 now. Um, I got hired when I was 19 in a receiving department. Um, and it was just kind of like at the time, I don't know, it was a stupid – 19-year-old, like probably most 19-year-olds are stupid 19-year-olds, and I was, you know, short-sighted, and, you know, for for whatever reason, I thought, hey, a career in warehouse working? Yes. (laughs) And I applied and got hired, and, um, yeah, so, I mean, I I worked in several warehouses over the course of my tenure at Boeing, but it was all pretty much kind of like very, very similar tasks of receiving shipments of freight uh checking the part number on the part against the paperwork that it comes with and verifying quantity and then moving on to the next box and then you know doing that for 13 years
0: yep and then eventually leaving
1: and jumping to art yeah so i i guess i got laid off after uh september 11th like a lot of boeing employees did Mm -hmm. and um went to school and got an Associate of Applied Science degree in uh, graphic design, which is mostly my connection to the making art, but oh, okay. I didn't learn a lot of super useful things in that program, especially things that could benefit me as like a professional graphic designer. Yeah. The, the idea was to become a professional graphic designer, but yeah. uh, you know, it, and in the economy at the time, I mean, the market was flooded with, you know, people looking for jobs and graphic designers with master's degrees you know and I just was uh, not a good graphic designer and I had no confidence whatsoever and mm-hmm. um and so uh long story short the company ended up ramping back up and the union you know hired back everybody that got laid off and that's how I was brought back to Boeing and then um and then I don't know, four years ago or so now, um, I had this incident at work mm-hmm. um, where I uh, accidentally ran a um, electric sort of an electric forklift. Mm-hmm. Uh, I scraped it against an airplane wing in a, in a in a situation where you know I had told my superiors a million times that, hey, you know what if we keep you know doing business like this, somebody, Is going to end up running into this wing Mm -hmm. anyway yeah yeah and i don't i don't want to like completely i mean i i did it i ran into that wing it was me right yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, Um, yeah it was my manager didn't do it yeah um but anyway um i I am a marijuana smoker. Mm -hmm. And of course, they sent me in for a pee test, which came back very dirty. Mm -hmm. And they sent me home uh, for an unplanned five weeks off until my system could clean out. And then they could let me back into the company. Mm -hmm. Um, But while I was out on that leave was when I I had been making art for maybe a year before that point. But that was when it really kind of hit me that, you know, this job isn't good for me and that uh, I just couldn't spend my life d- doing that. I just couldn't. Yeah. Um, and so I just, uh, that's when I kind of resolved to get out of it and try to find a, another way to, to live my life. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So let's, I mean, we haven't even talked about cancer yet where mm-hmm. I don't know how far we're into this conversation, but we haven't even talked about cancer yet. So, mm-hmm. so uh, that's clearly a, a, Big part, a big chapter yeah, in yeah, yeah, your life, and that, that definitely influences. I'm, I'm assuming influences some of the marijuana <laughs> use, and just there's a huge it, there's context here. <laughs> yeah, right? there is context. Um, yeah. So can you, can you just tell that story?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, about I don't know, eight and a half years, maybe nine years ago at this point. Um, I, I feel like. Sometimes when I talk to, you know, other cancer patients, they're like, it was April of 09, Mm -hmm. you know, or, but I don't have, you know, like, I'm not that concrete. It was about nine and a half years ago or so. um, And it was a mole on the side of my face that, you know, I went in for just a regular physical. And, you know, the doctor was like, you know, hey, you might want to go to a dermatologist and get this mole checked out. And, um, well, long story short, I did. And it turned out to be melanoma. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was they determine a the threat level of a melanoma by how deep it goes into the skin. So anything deeper than one millimeter is considered high risk, and you know, shallower than uh, one millimeter is low risk. And mine was like 0.7 or 0.8. And so they uh, did a surgery where they removed the patch of skin um, and that was it. And then about nine months later, it showed up in a lymph gland on the right side of my neck, right below uh, where the original mole was. The mole was on my right sideburn. And then that led to a surgery where I had nine lymph glands and most of my salivary gland on that side removed. And then it was uh, five weeks of um, radiation treatments, five days a week. And then it was uh, four weeks of chemotherapy that I was doing five days a week. So, like, after work, I would go home and shower and then right down to the clinic for an IV infusion of chemotherapy and then go home and spike a fever and aches and chills and the whole nine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then... go back
0: to work the next day?
1: Yeah, actually, I I didn't take any time off through this, which, you know, may have been a mistake. But the way... I mean, different chemotherapies make people... Respond differently. I mean, some people can take chemotherapy, and really, there's not a lot of negative side effects. Um, and sometimes, I know that you know people will take chemo, and then you know, like maybe three days later, they get real sick and then stay sick. You know, like they'll have a chemo infusion every two weeks or something like that, mm-hmm. where they have an infusion and then spend a week recovering and then going for another one. But with this chemo, it was called interferon. It uh, I would get the infusion, and then within I would say two hours, I would just get a really high fever with uh aches and chills like a like a really really severe flu Mm -hmm. but not throwing up or anything like that just feeling like i could but i didn't actually like spending any time throwing up um and then i would wake up the next morning and just feel kind of drained but uh no you know fever or anything like that and i i just went to work through all of that um i feel like I I just wanted to as much as I could keep my life the same as it was I didn't want to change anything because of the disease Um, and also at that point I you know I wasn't married and I was just single and no kids or anything and um, I have never at that point I had never had any kind of like health problems in my life and so I kind of, uh, I didn't research it at all. You know, I didn't really look into it. I just kind of like followed what my doctor told me to do and I just didn't really think about it very much. Mm-hmm. Um, so what ended up happening was uh, the, I did the four weeks of chemo and then it was like a two weeks off and then I was supposed to go to three days a week of chemo that I, the same interferon that I injected myself with at home so I didn't have to go in for the infusion but it would still be a very similar side effect process. And 12 weeks into that, I ended up having a grand mal seizure at work where um, I, uh, from my perspective, I was driving an electric forklift mm-hmm. and then waking up in an ambulance. Wow. And I, it was a really, really strange experience because um, I remember on the forklift and feeling like something was about to happen and then Boom. The very next second, I'm in the back of the ambulance, and I thought that I was at home on my recliner looking at the TV, but I was in the uh, gurney looking at the back window of the ambulance, and then the ambulance, you know, came into focus, and I realized where I was, and um, I was supposed to be on the Interferon for the full year, but they took me off of it immediately because it was determined that that was a side effect of the Interferon.
0: And how long had you
1: Twelve. Th- it was twelve weeks of the home injections, so sixteen total weeks of, of chemo. Okay. Um, and it was like I said, it was supposed to be forty-eight weeks of the home, in, the so injecting at home.
0: Twenty-five percent of the way there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and then, so they took me off of it, and uh, recovering from that was, I felt like I could jump over a building. You know, I didn't really realize how weak I was becoming until I was off of it, and it was just like. Mm-hmm like the most amazing feeling yeah um and then about 10 months after that um they thought they found another lump in my neck and uh were going to send me into a surgeon to have that have it biopsied and the surgeon wanted to do a ct scan of my uh abdomen and chest and neck before the surgery and that's where they found that it had metastasized through my uh, lungs and my abdomen and uh which is stage four. And that was the first time that I actually Googled it and started looking into it. And stage four melanoma turns out to be no joke. Um, And at the time, the survival statistics were about um, 7% chance of surviving over five years. And so um, in my mind, I I, I was never really one to, um, like uh, I'm not, a sunny, happy person necessarily, you know, or like super optimistic. Um, and so I kind of just resigned myself to dying of cancer, probably in 18 months from that time of my diagnosis, because I figured, I, I, I it was around that time I found a blog of a guy that had stage four melanoma with a very similar story to mine. His, I mean, as to where his first mole was, and then it, where it went into his neck, and then it metastasized into his lungs and abdomen. Uh, he did the interferon for the full year, um, and then he got onto a research study that I'm actually involved in, uh, and he died. And I remember finding out that he died. It was like, you know, I kind of like calculated how far from his diagnosis did he make it, and kind of assigned that onto myself, and mm-hmm. just started really like living as much as I possibly could. You know, I, I, I just, you know, I think that there's something lost when... Well, I I should say that everybody should go about, you know, their cancer experience in whatever way they feel that they should. And, you know, some people, that's being, um, you know, stubborn against it and insisting that they will survive through it. But for me, I just felt like, um, you know, being honest and just coming to grips with myself and saying, this, this is... I got 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, caused me to just live differently and see life differently and, you know, make decisions like leaving my job at Boeing so that I could become an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that that cancer was definitely, definitely the, the thing that kind of pulled me out of kind of like a life of, um, you know, routine and just sort of uh, blindly kind of, you know, Waking up at three thirty in the morning and you know go, going through my day, even though I just totally hated it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's I mean I had been a marijuana smoker before all that happened, but um, while I was on the interferon, I got a, you know a prescription for it back when that sort of thing was brand spanking new. And mm-hmm. um, Boeing, because of their contracts with the Department of Defense, uh, they have to abide by federal law rather than local law. And so they just had no leniency on me whatsoever. There was no, not an ounce of compassion. Mm-hmm. Which you know, I mean, it was a terrible thing to go through. But you know, I, I guess I can understand why they were just so uh, lacking compassion.
0: Yeah. So the, so so you you, the interferon is mm-hmm. that what it's called? Yeah. Inter- so interferon. So you got off of the interferon. Yeah.
1: Um, and. Metastasize. Metastasize. And then um, okay. I at the time, I was receiving uh, treatment at the polyclinic, mm-hmm. and that's where my oncologist was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it went to stage four, I needed a specialist, so um, they sent me over to the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance where um, I was going to go into the care of Dr. John Thompson, who's a total fucking badass. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, he kind of like laid out my options for me uh i could do a traditional chemotherapy called decarbazine which is you know a chemotherapy infusion that makes you sick and uh, has a terrible success rate as a lot of chemotherapies do um like it really surprised me how abysmally low the success rate of some of the gnarliest chemotherapies are you know where a chemotherapy is not in, in a lot of situations it's not meant to Um, cure you of cancer. It's meant to give you a handful of months, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and that was the situation I was in, and that's what decarbazine would have done, Um, and, but he said that the other option was this new study that they had just started for this drug um, that was at the time called RO5185426, and It's based on a specific gene mutation that causes cells to divide rapidly in cancerous tumors, and so they had to. I I I decided to go the, to go on to that study, so they had to test my uh, original tumor, which all of the tissues that they remove from my body, or I'm guessing anybody's body, gets saved, and sealed in wax and put on a shelf somewhere, and they were able to go to that piece and slice it up and determine that I did have the gene mutation that was uh, that this specific drug's, drug works on. Um, and so I was enrolled into the study. And this drug uh, ended up being pretty effective overall for the treatment of stage 4 melanoma um, to the point where it kind of got fast-tracked to FDA approval and is now called vimurafenib And the strange thing is that for most people that take it, they get um, six to eight months worth of benefit from it and then the disease progresses. And so for me, it uh, you know decreased the size of my tumors originally by maybe 30 or 40%. Wow. Um, and then it was just kind of like a wait and see. And then it was a wait and see and a wait and see and a wait and see and my tumors kind of stuck around and they weren't going anywhere. And now I'm eight years out from that. Um, on this drug that was never meant to be a permanent solution for anybody. Um, I'm the record holder in Seattle for being on this drug the longest, and um, worldwide, there's only a handful of people that really have been out this long taking this specific drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an anomaly mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And, but I'm, I am still enrolled in the study, and I do still take it. It's twice daily, yeah. uh, in oral medication so there's no infusions or anything like that, um, and the side effects are tolerable. Just like we were discussing earlier, I got uh, severe sun sensitivity, right. um, and it caused some issues with my eyes. Right. That uh, It caused a condition called uveitis, which is the inflammation of the uvea, and the only way to control uveitis is through a steroid eye drop called prednisolone. The steroid eyedrop causes cataracts, so. I got cataracts and had my lenses, my eye lenses replaced with new lenses Mm -hmm. that cannot get cataracts ever again. So, I mean, it's been issues and stuff like that with it, but it's been entirely tolerable uh, for a cancer treatment drug, and especially for me, since for some reason, it's just been working for me for this long.
0: That's incredible. Um, so, So you talked about how it shifted, so this 18 month period, right where where you were reading the blog and, mm-hmm. and you had this shift in your perspective yeah on data just life in general mm-hmm. um can can you expand on that period mm-hmm. first and then I'd, i want to come back to just what you're talking about right now mm-hmm. about the record holder in seattle and maybe in the world and just because there's 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 two phases mm-hmm. here. There's this phase where, the way that I'm interpreting it is, um, you have this. Um, well, I'd noted that you had written "profound freedom" mm-hmm. on your on your website. Like you just had this profound freedom, right? So yeah. I think that's probably in reference to this mm-hmm. 18-month phrase. And then I'm you're it. I'm assuming you're living that in a more deep, rich, meaningful way post that 18-month phase. Mm-hmm. But can you talk about just that, that 18-month time of life?
1: Yeah. Um, I would say that it was sort of like uh, there was no, um, you know, like getting the news that – I mean, first of all, I should say that um, I, I think that doctors don't say you have 18 months to live. mm mm-hmm. You know, I think with some cancers are a little bit more cut and dry, um, but I, my doctors were very reluctant to talk about this sort of thing. I mean, I, I had to like dig. You know, to to find out, uh, like, how does somebody die of stage four melanoma? Yeah. Um, well, you're referencing this
0: this other person, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and were you kind of learning through the lens of that blog of that person?
1: Kind of, yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, he was in a lot of pain, yeah. and he, you know died uncomfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, from what my doctor told me, and I, I think that this is probably more common, is that melanoma uh, kills by metastasizing to the brain. Mm-hmm. So um, this isn't exactly what you asked, but um, I, I think it, it leads in. Um, he said that you can imagine it sort of like, um, like um, a graph where the uh, x-axis is time and the y-axis is health. So where most cancers, as it moves along the x-axis, the line on the the line goes down slowly, towards death or the end or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But with melanoma, you kind of like go along asymptomatic for the most part, and then suddenly Mm -hmm. it ends suddenly. And so, um, in terms of like how I, uh, what that 18 months was like, um, I didn't have a, a. moment you know where i you know stood in a sunray and i was like life is different now mm-hmm. you know it was something that that happened more um subtly than that um and it was almost like um the movie groundhog day is how i could describe it mm-hmm. where have you seen groundhog day yeah. yeah where i kind of uh started to realize that you know the things that i thought were so consequential, you know, r- really aren't, and that, you know, um, I I could feel free to, you know, take more risks or, you know, just, I guess that, that's it, just take more risks and be risky mm-hmm. w- without really having to worry about, you know, deep, long-lasting consequences, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I started uh, being less introverted, you know, or like, you know, if I was going to go out with a On a date or something, then I, you know, wouldn't hesitate to, like, kiss the girl at the end of the date because, why not? Where that's not something that I would normally do. I'm kind of shy normally, you know. But um, I also got a uh, Harley Davidson that I, have wanted ever since I was little. Yeah. And uh, just rode the shit out of it, you know, and um, just really. Thinking back on it, I was behaving irresponsibly. Like, there's no question about it. Somebody was going to be like, hey, I'm thinking about getting a Harley and, you know, riding year round from Seattle to Everett and back. I would say, bad idea. But I got rid of my car and was commuting on this thing year round. Yeah. Um, And just. Why would you say bad idea? Oh, because it just gets icy. Oh, I I mean, I I did end up crashing the bike spectacularly, you know, on the highway at 60 miles an hour in the ice. Wow. And. Uh, cannot believe that I walked away from that without an injury, but um
0: during I, this I eighteen didn't. month period that happened
1: that was probably in the in that eighteen months yeah wow. um, and so and so yeah it it, w- it wasn't uh uh like a total revelation I had all at once it was mm-hmm. something that kind of crept into my consciousness yeah and just became applied into my life just w-
0: were you changing um so if it was this gradual progressive kind of You know, shift. Were were you changing like daily habits? Like, if you reflect back and you're like, you know, I would wake up and do X, Y, Z, and then suddenly I woke up and I did A, B, C. Or are there things that you can reflect on that were pre shift and post shift or dirt shift,
1: Um, if you will? I would say just. (laughs) I, I would. I would say I would just probably more risky behavior. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and you know nothing like it's not like I started shooting heroin or you know <laughs> right. getting hookers or something like that. It's just, just things that I wouldn't ordinarily do because I, I I have been kind of a kind of a safe person in my life, you know, yeah. and I I'm not, I haven't been one to like take huge risks, but, you know, um, yeah, I'd say like like treating the motorcycle like I like I was treating it.
0: Pop and wheelies, going 60 down I-5, <laughs> stuff like yeah, that. No. It wasn't really
1: a wheelie type of bike. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, it, it was a it was a touring uh, Harley. So I had all the luggage and the fairing and the stereo in it. And yeah. it was like a like a Cadillac, you know.
0: Do you think it was risky, like relative to now, like the way that? Now that you've you've kind of at a different stage, mm-hmm. is it ri- like is it risky relative to now, or is it risky relative to the life that you were at before? Is it like from a zero to a five, but now you're at a seven anyway? So that it's does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like was it risk relative to Josh before melanoma, mm-hmm. or was it is it risky just relative to oh.
1: I would say it's. I mean, it's,
0: risk is kind of a subjective interpretation. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? mm-hmm. Um, I think that, and I've thought about this, and I I think that I don't want to say necessarily I was trying to die of a motorcycle accident instead yeah. of cancer. Yeah. But I wasn't completely like. I I wasn't. I mean, obviously, riding a motorcycle literally while it's snowing, you know, is is, you know, living in a way that's like, I would rather die of a motorcycle crash, you know? Um, so it's definitely risky in compared to just overall what people would say is, is risky behavior. And and certainly when it came to, you know, the way that I was living, but, you know, it was more than the motorcycle. Like I said, it was just how I was, you know, behaving with, you know, um, you know, women that I was attracted to and not, not like I was a total monster about it or anything like that, but just being a little bit um, free yeah I would say that that's the better term to use it Yeah, I was, yeah, it was yeah. just a little bit more free to just kind of you know throw the shackles of my previous self off and just try you know what, what is it like to be the guy that you know initiates the kiss at the end of the date right you know right
0: right so was there was there a moment where you, Maybe it was the motorcycle accident, but was there was there a moment or can, reflecting back, is there a period where you started to shift out of that mm-hmm. risky um, mindset?
1: Probably the motorcycle accident had a big had a big thing to do with it's a that. Call. Yeah, I mean, um, at the time, the bike was obviously. I, I mean, it it I couldn't just you know continue riding. The bike mm-hmm. was totally trashed. Yeah. Um, But it was repairable, so I, you know, it went to the Harley shop and I had like a month and a half of no bike and I had to, you know, get a car. And um, in that window of time until I got the bike back, um, I was able to think about the accident, you know, and and, uh, when I got the bike back, as you can imagine, it was kind of a different story. And I was, um, you know, not entirely scared of it, but it changed the way that I the way that I rode and the way that I saw myself as a biker Um, but but I would say that overall um, I think it was just as my diagnosis became more normalized to myself you know and not such a shocking thing anymore and um, I got into a really serious relationship with um, Laura who I'm dating you know she's my girlfriend now but you know we've been together for so long and I love her so much girlfriend seems like a shallow term to use but you know Mm -hmm. we aren't married but she's absolutely the most amazing human being i've ever met i hope she's listening to this right now laura (laughs) i love you so much
0: shout out to laura
1: (laughs) yeah i love she's amazing um but i feel like having her in my life kind of grounded me and Mm -hmm. and helped me to rein it in a little bit yeah um but i mean at the same time there's still things that i do you know with her like we go backpacking Mm -hmm. you know that i i Probably, I've always, you know, wanted to take myself seriously as a backpacker, but really never, you know, got into it until she came into my life, and now, you know, we're, you know, spending a week in the woods, you know, and just like hiking a hundred miles, and it's mm-hmm. just, she's amazing. Yeah. So I, I think that the the motorcycle and kind of the behavior that was risky, like in an immediate sort of level, and now it's more things that, you know. Like doing the backpacking trips, yeah uh, I see her as you know m- maybe that's the risky part of it, or, yeah. or you know, leaving my job at Boeing was probably a risky maneuver, mm-hmm. um, where I'm making decisions that uh, I wouldn't have made otherwise that are risky, but not that are going to kill me right violently,
0: right yeah. right well, I mean I think you referenced this earlier I mean it's probably part of the um, part of the process of processing. Having cancer, right? Mm-hmm. You had said uh, everyone has a different way of dealing with it and coping with it, and you know I, that I'm guessing that was your way of
1: of yeah. dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mean like riding a bike through the winter and stuff like that? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Um, it was. I I remember at that time I I had found this counselor that I was working with, mm-hmm. and. uh you know really just talking a lot about the motorcycle and what it meant to me and you know it was really like I think the bike was was key for me in, in getting getting through at least those first you know couple of years
0: yeah it mm-hmm. was it it was like a tangible depiction of I think this so. profound freedom that you're talking about
1: um I would say that it was kind of like yeah it was like that but it was also and maybe this is something that I'm just now realizing, but it was also kind of like a tangible um, threat to my life, you mm. know, that, that maybe... That you could control? That I, I, I mean... In theory? S- yeah, s- for that. the most part. Yeah. I mean, except for that one time right. Right. Uh, that I could not control it. Um, but, yeah, I, f- I feel like maybe the motorcycle was like a, like an analogy for the cancer or something yeah. like that. Yeah. That it was, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it
0: does. Okay. It does. Uh, so, so how about now? Like, how what? What does your what does life look like for you? Like, what's your perspective on life now? Knowing that, well, just uh, actually, I don't want to couch it anyway. Just what's mm-hmm. your perspective on life?
1: now? Well, I would say that uh, r- right now I am living in my most favorite era of my life. Yeah. I, I've said this before, but I'm like. I'm in my most favorite era of my life right now, and even saying that makes me it makes me worry for the future. Mm-hmm. But I think that it will only get better from here. That's what I'm planning on. Um, so why is it the, why is it your most favorite vintage? Just because I am you know ma- making the hard work now, and you know Laura's in my life and the activities that we do, and you know it's I mean we do we do backpacking, but also she brings just so much into my life. Um, like I was never. You know, we didn't. I, I grew up. We weren't living in abject poverty, but you know, we were probably a lower class family, and we never traveled. I never rode in an airplane with my family. Mm-hmm. And with Laura, you know, I, we, we take a trip once a year out to just a different destination. This year, we went to New Orleans. Mm-hmm. You know, and she just, uh, uh, like she shows life to me, you know, and um, and that is. Uh, it's been very major having her having her in my life, um, and I don't spend any time really obsessing over my cancer diagnosis. Um, partially just because it's been so long, I've been living with this you know for eight or nine years now, and um, I think that it's possible that I'll probably still die of cancer, um, but you know you might die of cancer, or mm-hmm. and I don't know. Life is pretty uncertain, and right. so I just you know live like life is uncertain. I think, you know, maybe we should all be living like life is uncertain. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I I don't know. I, I kind of mentioned this before, but um, like I, I haven't really been uh, like a very optimistic person. I, w- I would say that I've been probably depressive through my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been on and off antidepressant medication, um, you know, l- leading up to the cancer experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm cured off of being depressive, um, cause I still have all those tendencies and stuff like that, but, mm-hmm. um, uh, being on this side of the cancer diagnosis in, you know, the last eight and a half years, um, has certainly turned that into something different, you yeah. know, and it's, it's still, it's still there, but it's just something that's different. I feel like I just cope with it better now.
0: Do you feel like you're an optimistic person now?
1: Um, I think that, uh, I wouldn't say in my core I'm an optimistic person, but I'm getting better at um, inserting optimism, you know, it's like, um, like if I was, you know, I guess the mental picture I get is like, if I was like an old school computer, optimism would be the disk that you put in, and the disk just stays there, and I have access to it, you know, or maybe that that disc wasn't there before, but i i i have that drive now, yeah, you know where i can i can uh, find optimism, yeah, and it's not a struggle
0: yeah you know so what 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 is the disc or what represents the disc in life
1: for you? oh um what represents the disc i would say just the temporary nature of things and mm. you know realizing that uh you know, walking around with a pessimistic attitude and everything like that just doesn't help anything. You know, nothing really gets accomplished with that. Yeah. And um, optimism is just obviously the complete opposite of that. I feel like you know, it just keeps doors open.
0: Yeah.
1: You know. Does that make sense? It does make sense.
0: When you're creating your art, mm-hmm. do, do you have to put the disc in the optimism disc in or? Is your art? So I, I am novice when it comes to art mm-hmm. at best. I took an art history class in in, in college, so mm-hmm. I, I do have a, a fond memories of of uh, of that class. But beyond that, I don't know anything about art. I appreciate art, but I don't know anything mm-hmm. about art. But I sometimes I associate art with being like, in order for it to be authentic, it has to have like some type of, um, you know, like. Uh, who cut his ear off? Which one? Van Gogh. It? Van Gogh cut his ear yeah. like like some like a torture type of right. soul type of thing. Mm-hmm. But then there's this other side where I think there's an optimism component to it that actually draws, um, a, a like a a more complete level of engagement for people who really want that inspiration, mm-hmm. right? And at least in terms of the way that. I was attracted to your art. Was on the this side. It was on the optimism side, in mm-hmm. just seeing the Bruce Lee piece and seeing the quote, "In mm-hmm. the midst of chaos lies opportunity," mm-hmm. um, and then reading your story. I was like, "Holy shit! This is an this is an incredible story that's inspiring," and it g- gave me an optimistic optimistic perspective. So I'm just curious, like if if you draw from either of those two mm. when you're doing your art, uh, or just how does this all of this stuff reflect itself in a collage that, that you're working on sure. right now?
1: Um, I would say that I definitely draw from the optimistic side. Mm. Um, like, I wouldn't describe my art as moody. You mm-hmm. know, I, I like my art to be, you know, it's very bright and colorful, and I like it to, you know, like jump off the wall and really affect a room that is hanging in um and I um I I love doing it so much that I hope that my my love for it comes across in you know the way that it looks and the the feeling that it gives a person when they when they look at it um yeah because I that's an interesting question because I, I do think that um I have a I have this tendency or historically I would say um I would be more like not not to compare myself to Van Gogh obviously, but I would be more Van Goghish, and I would think that my art would be kind of dark and brooding, and you know, reflecting a tortured. You know, you know, like I like to listen to death metal music, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and it's, you know, I like very, you know, dark, uh, satanic, you know, um, music because it kind of like feeds that monster that you know lives inside of my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I would say that my art is definitely not that. It's 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 much more like on the optimism side. I, I just I don't know. So well,
0: do you listen to that music while you're creating a collage of
1: I do. like, Dolly Parton smiling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. not entirely. Yeah, but yeah. it is it's part of it. I mean, yeah, I yeah it's part of it. The 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 music I was almost like like gas in my gas tank you know it's like it's like mm-hmm. the thing that moves my arms and legs yeah. you know and, yeah. um, and and it's not I don't just you know like pound death metal into my ears all the hours that I'm making art but um, I don't shy away from it Yeah. I mean I, I do like all sorts of different kinds of music but yeah. um, I, I do feel like like there's <laughs> this is a little overly dramatic but um, like there's a darkness in my soul you know what I mean but it's not I don't feel necessarily that that is manifested in my artwork. Mm-hmm. I think that it manifests in other ways, probably through the music that I listen to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean when I I haven't seen all of your art. I've, mm-hmm. Well, actually I've seen a lot of it on your website. Mm-hmm. But the art that I saw live, it it's it's always um I mean it's something that 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 is engaging and Kind of gets people puts a smile on your face. Right. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I think of that Christopher Walken piece, mm-hmm. and just seeing that from across the coffee shop just made me laugh. Part partly because it's Christopher Walken, but mm-hmm. I think the way that you designed it is just entertaining. Yeah. There's an entertainment value. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, that's I would say that's my goal is to I, I want to create art that makes people want to smile you yeah. know, or laugh or, yeah. or remember something that they love. Yeah, you know. Um, I actually had a conversation recently with somebody who bought a piece of my art mm-hmm. um, from the gallery downtown where it's hanging.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which um, is? I which can plug that. Yeah, absolutely. It's the Michael Bierauer Gallery. Okay. Okay. Um, and where, they're
0: located at? First, uh, in, First
1: and Madison, I think okay. it is, right next to the Alexis Hotel. Okay. Um, and somebody bought a piece of my art down there, and they were saying that I should try and make art that reflects my cancer struggle or my cancer journey or, Mm -hmm. you know, use my cancer as so like the basis for, um, for the art that I make. And Mm -hmm. I just have a hard time, uh, even envisioning what that would look like. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like off the top of my head, I'm like a piece of art with an IV bag or Mm -hmm. I, I just don't know. I, I just don't know. And I am not interested in, in making art. That's, that's like dark or deathly at all, Yeah, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I, don't, I don't know. I just don't know how to how to depict how to how to depict that part of my right. myself or my life right. really. Right. So, what uh, what piece are you working on now? I'm working on a piece that's a picture. Oh, my art is all from photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right now I'm working on a piece that's a picture of um, the Space Needle as seen from the observation deck of the Smith Tower. Oh, cool. I, do you want to see a work-in-progress yeah, picture? Yeah, 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 absolutely. This won't... Uh, I'll show it to the microphone also, but...
0: <laughs> well, uh, if you send me the picture, we can po- put it on the website.
1: Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, thanks. And that's
0: showing at the, at the gallery right now, currently?
1: No, this is...
0: Or, oh, you're just th- working on it. Yeah,
1: this, th- it. this picture I took yesterday, right before I left my space. Okay. So I'm going to go straight from here to finish this piece. Okay. Um, yeah, right now I have... The gallery has five... Well, I guess four pieces of mine. I gave them six, and two have sold. Okay. Which, I cannot believe the two sold, but Why? two sold. Why? I don't know. I just, uh, an art gallery, you know? It's <laughs> it's it's not like hanging art in a bar or something like that. It's like, you know, this is an art gallery. Yeah. It's just a little bit more real to yeah. me. It kind of, I feel like it l- gives me some legitimacy. Yeah. Um, and it's nice to, you know, feel like I'm contributing to the gallery. and. Yeah. Um, you know, being an active member of the community, you know, rather than just kind of like a lone wolf. Yeah. Um, but well, I.
0: That which community or what?
1: Just like oh, the, just the, the art, art community, art community okay. of Seattle, yeah. and th- yeah. this this gallery has kind of like a little family of artists, mm-hmm. and you know they invited me in. Yeah. And you know, it, so the art that I bring them, I wanted to you know sell so that they can pay their bills and. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine that's an easy business to be running, but yeah. um, to to be able to be a contributor is means a lot to me. Yeah. Um, but yeah.
0: So let's talk a little bit about um, the journey from making art to selling art to okay. being in the gallery. Mm-hmm. So okay. if you can kind of just talk through that journey of mm-hmm. you make the the first piece of Lily mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to selling two pieces <laughs> in an art gallery. So okay. what what is that? What has that process looked like?
1: Um. It's been interesting. I, I um. Yeah. I you know at first I was making art with the crate wood. Um, the lily is made out of crate wood, and I still have some crate wood pieces that are hanging in my apartment. Um, and you know at first it was. Friends and family members buying my art mostly, and you know, I had a friend of mine, uh, a fellow cancer survivor named Elaine, uh, who commissioned me to do portraits of her three kids, and that was like my first, you know, proper commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I made those out of The Stranger, mm-hmm. and then yeah, I don't know. And then I sold the the first piece that I sold to a somebody that I don't know, like a complete stranger was out of Harry's Bar on Capitol Hill Mm -hmm. where, I should plug also, Harry's Bar on Capitol Hill. It's a place where I'm kind of like the in-house artist there, and so I've got a pretty good display of art going there right now. Um, But it ended up being the, uh, it ended up being the, like, president of Selen Construction Hmm. who, they're, I don't know, Selen's, I didn't really realize it when he, you know, it's like, yeah, they're (laughs) They do some serious projects around yeah. Seattle. Yeah. And it was a portrait of Prince that I did using the Prince memorial issue of The Stranger. Oh, uh, that's cool. Um, and so that was kind of like that was like my first kind of step out of being supported by friends and family. Mm-hmm. And then and and like as I've set out to, you know, take myself more seriously as an artist, I feel like I've made these little goals, you know, like At first, you know, with the crate, what I wanted to make nine pieces and then hang them up at Harry's. Mm -hmm. And then I did that. And then, you know, some of those pieces sold all to friends and family. You know, and then my next goal was to have a stranger be so interested in my art that they wanted to buy a piece. And then that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I I sort of set these little goals. And so far, each one has, you know, been met or come to pass. Yeah. Um,
0: How many phases of... Goal setting oh, and I,
1: accomplishment. I, I don't know. And it's not even really like I typed it out on a spreadsheet yeah. or anything like that. I just yeah. have this nebulous idea, yeah. you know, that that I wanted to end up with my art in a gallery and selling, you know. And so um, I have to get there somehow. It, it's not A, isn't opening up the crate, and B, is selling art in a gallery, Right. you know. um when I first hung art up at, at yep. Harry's Bar, those first nine pieces, it was like um, appearing naked in front of a bunch of strangers. It was like a very personal thing that I was putting out there, and I, I had to, um, I had to think, you know, why is it that artists feel the need to put their art up mm-hmm. in front of people and display it publicly? Like, I'm sure there are artists that create art and then just hang on to it you yeah. know but i i think that they're in the minority and i think that most artists for whatever reason feel driven to to display their stuff publicly whether it's you know art you know 2d stuff that you hang on the wall or whether it's music or anything like that you know the goal is to have people look at it and mm-hmm. you know you know maybe buy it or be affected by it or whatever yeah so i i feel like i had to sort of figure out for myself you know why am i doing this Am I just doing it so that I can be complimented? You know, I I don't want to just make art so that people can compliment me. You know, I'd I'd rather have my motives be a little bit more. (laughs) Although I should say the compliments are nice. I like the compliments. (laughs) I mean, it's nice to be complimented. Yeah. But yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Well, I mean, so so having the courage to take something that you've created Mm -hmm. that is an extension of you. Right? Yeah. like you, when you put that up on the wall and you put a price associated with that, there's some vulnerability mm-hmm. because you're basically saying, like, I poured myself into this. I'm going to put it on a wall, and I'm going to hope that someone's willing to pay that price for it. Yeah,
1: also assigning a price to your own artwork is yeah really strange. Yeah, it's really strange, yeah. especially because. We kind of live in a culture where people, you know, buy art at IKEA, mm-hmm. you know, or Fred Meyer or something <laughs> right, like that, and right. you know, it's like, right. you know, 50 bucks right. for you know this big piece of wall art, and yeah. you know, and, and that's fine yeah. if that's what you want to do, but yeah. you know, p- people that are making art by hand cannot possibly charge those kind of prices, and right. so people, I, I remember once I hung art up. This is actually kind of a funny story at Schilling Cider in Fremont. I don't know if you've been there. They have a pretty decent art wall there. Yeah. And I hung art up and then, um, you know, went there on that first Friday or whatever, just to kind of hang out and have a little a reception. Mm-hmm. Not too many people showed up. Mm-hmm. It happened to be on my birthday. Mm-hmm. And um, I got there a little early, and I'm kind of sitting there drinking a cider, and there's some um, people at the next table over who don't know who I am, who are looking up at this art. <laughs> and it's got... Like the art wall is on one side of the place and then just directly opposite of the art wall is like a big refrigerator filled with bottled cider, you know, Mm -hmm. like probably a thousand bottles of cider. And this guy, he looks at the, this one piece that I have, you know, and he's like, God, I can't believe how much art costs. You you think you could have this one piece of art or all this (laughs) cider. And everybody at the table kind of looks at the art and then points at the cider case. While I'm sitting right there, you know, <laughs> and so, so yeah, it's there's a self consciousness about, you know, saying that my art is worth, you know, hundreds of dollars, yeah. but you know, yeah. y- you have to you have to just step forward, and just, you know, <laughs> right. like you just have to step up and do it,
0: <laughs> right, right. So, but was that a was that a tough barrier?
1: Yeah, it was. Just,
0: like hanging that first piece of art, it was in Harry, at Harry's. Party. Yeah,
1: the first art I displayed was at Harry's. Yeah. Like, and, and it was like even
0: making the call, or how did that happen? How did it?
1: How did my Did you end call Harry's? Harry's
0: and say, "Hey, I, I, I've got art"? Or well, what?
1: I lived in that neighborhood. Yeah. Um. I actually was just like one block away from there, so Harry's is a spot where I would hang out, you know, or okay. yeah. you know, go there for dinner and stuff. And I I always saw the rotating art up on the wall, and it's a really nice big art wall. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I just, that bar is really cool. They they actually got the uh, the bar back from the J&M Cafe, I think it was, okay. yeah. which was a historic bar down yeah. in Pioneer Square. Yeah. And they got it from there up to Capitol Hill. So it's oh, like wow. this nice, ornate, yeah. you know, with the mirrors and the wood and everything like that. And yeah. it's just a really cool bar. Yeah. Um, and because that's was a place where I hung out, you know, I just asked the bartender, how do I how do I get my stuff up in here? And he said, talk to Lucy. And so I talked to Lucy and showed her some pictures. And she said, Mm. nothing violent or sexual. And, you know, Mm. let's do it. And then, yeah, it's just, it's worked out very well there. I I feel like my art likes to be up in Harry's. Uh And uh, Harry's likes my art enough to... You know, stop doing rotating artists and just yeah. kind of like make me the in-house artist.
0: How long have you been the in-house artist there?
1: Oh, I've only been like technically the in-house artist for maybe six months. Okay. But,
0: okay. Um, or how long have you been showing? When when was the first piece of art? When did that first piece of art go up?
1: Probably 2013. I, I actually oh, had wow. my I had my first art opening there. Um, <laughs> so I had that incident at Boeing where they walked me to the gate. Yeah. Um, on like a Tuesday, and then that Friday was my art opening. That's a good. Or, or maybe it was like on a Saturday. But yeah, I was like, you know, at the art o- at the art opening. I'm trying to be happy, but really, I was just like stressed to the core yeah. over that yeah. whole issue. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. It, it was it, it was nerve wracking and strange to you know just just to simply walk by the place and look in the window and see all my art hanging on the right. wall there, and you know, but. It was, it was also encouraging because, you know, I, I remember I went in there for dinner with my dad after I hung it up and sitting there in a booth and watching, you know, someone go down slowly one piece at a time and really like regard the artwork, you know, right in front of me, you know, like a piece of artist right over the booth and she's standing right there in front of me, yeah. having no idea that I'm the artist. Yeah. It was just like, felt like I'm doing the right thing. It's rewarding. It's rewarding, yeah. Off, offsets the the cider, the <laughs> cider incident. <laughs> the cider incident wasn't after that, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's just people. Subjective, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is subjective. It's the line arts yeah. in, in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Um, I, I wanted to say just one yeah. more thing. I, I feel like there's um, almost like um, a catchphrase that I have about yeah. my situation and my. Uh, you know, dealing with the cancer and feeling like um, you know my life is being shortened, mm-hmm. um, and it's 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 a realization. I should have mentioned this earlier, but yeah. it's a realization that time is a commodity. You know, just like any other commodity, yeah. and the less you have of it, the more of what you have is worth. You know, and so when you're a person who's dealing with a terminal cancer diagnosis suddenly having this realization that you know i'm not going to grow into an old man you know it's it's like this minute that i'm in or this hour that i'm in or this day becomes way more valuable to to the point where you just can't waste it or or that i couldn't waste it you know and uh and yeah just i think that uh you know if i live until i'm 45 and you live until you're 100 the difference between our lifespans is negligible. You know, it's it's practically meaningless uh, on a planetary time scale. Right. You know, and and we we don't necessarily live our lives on a planetary time scale. But I do feel like everybody's got numbered days. You know, and every single minute that counts down is just one more minute leading to your death. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, having it be shoved in your face like in a terminal diagnosis way forces you into realizing that but it's something that everybody can realize because everybody's you know walking around with a ticking clock in the background right. it's just realizing that right and then realizing that that really like this minute that you're in that you're occupying right now is just so precious right you know and, and your time is your life you know is the
0: time is a commodity is that a is that your mantra? Is that your? I would say so. Yeah. I mean, if if you have a mantra, is that your mantra? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How does that? How does that impact the way that you? Um, that you, well, it obviously impacts the way that you live your life. But how does it impact the way that you see the world? Because I think that perspective is very. I I mean I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I think. The vast majority of people in this in this country, let's say mm-hmm. I don't know about this world, but in this country, don't slow down to appreciate a lot of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, like we're in a constant like the person who has the 100 year old uh, lifespan, m- maybe at status quo and not ever push themselves outside of the comfort zone to actually find fulfillment or be rewarded in the way that you found fulfillment and rewards by mm. seeing your art up on a wall and seeing a stranger go up and appreciate it or actually have that stranger buy that art. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm trying to find the question. I've just made a statement. But sure. can, you, can you kind of riff on that a little bit?
1: Um, well, I mean, I think that it makes me into a more patient person. Mm-hmm. Um, i mean i the thing is I do still have you know like um tendencies to to be impatient, you know like uh, um my inner monologue is very rude, you know sometimes, especially like driving, you know like uh I can't remember there was a comedian i was i think it was a uh louis c k that was talking about how when he's driving, you know when somebody just does something like you know, like you're behind someone and they slow down for a right turn and then decide not to take the right and keep driving. And you're like, you fucking idiot. But if you're, you know, at the grocery store, you know, and somebody is walking slowly down the aisle, you wouldn't just tell the person, fuck <laughs> you. Um, but I, I think that, that, you know, it, it helps me to, to you know, um, not be that way and to to just kind of relax a little bit you know like i don't nothing is really that urgent you know to where i have to get so worked up about the smallest little things
0: yeah so you're somewhat empathetic Mm -hmm. what's the Mm -hmm. byproduct of your patience is that you're empathetic
1: Mm -hmm. it's not
0: like you're intentionally trying to be empathetic per se is that right
1: i mean i would it's you're
0: just taking things less serious yeah
1: Definitely. Well it's like the right
0: amount of serious is really the right way to say it.
1: I think it goes back to that groundhog day analogy, you know, like how seriously do we really have to take this? Right. You know. Some level of seriousness, especially like if you've got kids or whatever. Yeah. Um, but probably a lot less serious than we than we do take it. Right. You know. And so so yeah, from from there I just uh you know, uh, hung art up at Naked City. Which Mm -hmm. is now closed, Mm -hmm. Um, and I sold a piece out of there, and and then you know just opportunities to hang art around, and you know just it just sort of increased. Uh, Not not like you know I'm not selling a piece of art a day, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's you know it is it is selling. And I mean, yeah, yeah. Even though it was my intention, I didn't necessarily expect for that to happen, but it, it is just happening. Yeah. Um. And so what. Ended up happening was I somebody bought a piece out of Harry's that was a portrait of Hunter S. Thompson. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of an interesting, it was a picture of him uh, kind of like looking off with a cigarette, and then um, it was divided, and then it was a mirror image of the same picture done in negative. So it was like a landscape piece where one side was the picture and then the other side was negative mm-hmm. and reversed. Yeah. And a guy bought that who um, knew the owner of the Michael art Gallery, this guy Jerry. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jerry, you know, liked it and sent me an email and said, hey, how about you show some art down here? Yeah. And so the first art that I brought down there, um, so this is, I I was making art with a, Like plywood panels, like the piece that you have with PVC on the back, right? Mm -hmm. So I that's just how all of my art had been made up until that point. Mm -hmm. And you know when I first brought art down there, you know they they knew that that's how I was constructing artwork. And I brought them some pieces that I was pretty proud of, Um, a couple of those beer can pieces that I was mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. And next to the other art in the gallery. The PVC ends up looking a little janky, um, and I've had a lot of people that see the PVC, you know, at, at Harry's where everything has PVC on it. It doesn't, you don't, it doesn't look like anything. And people are like, "Oh, how creative! You know, what a creative solution!" Because it, you know, the PVC stands the piece off the wall and it right. gives it something to attach the wire to. And right. um, I got the idea from an airplane mechanic at at Boeing who's a good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought it was a pretty creative way to go about it. But mm-hmm. um, at the gallery, you know, they, they hung these pieces up that I thought were pretty striking, but they weren't moving. And so they finally said, look, we want to continue showing your art, but not. it, ha- it cannot be with the PVC anymore. <laughs> no more PVC. And so um, that's when I learned how to do, uh, they call it cradling. Like cradled panels, yeah, okay. and it's basically just building a wood frame onto the back of it, so that the wood panel resembles a canvas. Okay, you know, yeah. so it's, it's like a shallow box. Yeah, yeah. And so I, you know, got a, a miter saw and set it up in the basement of uh, Laura's sister and her husband, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of like my wood shop now. And so um, I go over there and I build a frame, and then. Let the glue dry for 24 hours, and then move it over to my studio, and um, so my my kind of my first batch of properly cradled panels um, is what's at the gallery now.
0: And you've sold two of six.
1: Two of six, yeah. Wow. And one of the six, I only brought down because it was a completed piece, but I wasn't I wasn't happy with it. Yeah.
0: So where do you? What's next? I mean, where now? So you've got these nebulous goals, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So what's the next nebulous goal that's bouncing around in your head after you've sold two of six pieces mm-hmm. in an established gallery mm-hmm. in but, a major metropolitan? I mean, what's <laughs> what's the next thing?
1: Um, I think my next goal is to just, um, just to be um, more prolific and to just, mm-hmm. like the process of leaning down my, you Know my art making to try to, you know, yeah. get that down to so where I can make my pieces a little bit faster and just continuing to give art to the gallery and hang mm-hmm. art up at Harry's and uh become more self sufficient. Like, I want to, I want this to be uh the only way that I make money, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah. And, you know, like I don't know, just just to become more legitimate, yeah. Um, which isn't something that's a black and white issue, you know it's, it's, it's a gradient that I you know it's hard to notice until it suddenly is there yeah you know but does that
0: mean more galleries?
1: Um, or? probably the, the thing about the gallery is that they have stipulations mm-hmm. about where I can show art and yeah. stuff like that. so um, as long as I have an active contract going with the Michael Beer Gallery, I can't show any of the cradled panels um in the city of seattle gotcha except for harry's they wrote it into the contract for me and and except for the pvc framed stuff yep um so i mean i would be open to working with more galleries but Mm -hmm. obviously not while i'm at at least i would be open to working with more galleries and any gallery outside the city um or in the city when i'm not on the contract with the michael bear gallery yeah but um, I, I guess a shorter-term goal. I guess sort of the in-between thing is just to be uh, prolific, mm-hmm. and every three or four pieces that I complete, just you know, bringing them right down to the gallery. And you know, I can only be the featured artist, you know, every now and again in the gallery. But I can have art in there, mm-hmm. you know, as often as they want to hang it. Yeah. And if you know, if I'm selling art, then they're more incentivized to display my stuff, and so. Yeah. I think just to, just to be... I want it to be sort of like, um, you know, just a process where I make a piece and then give it to the gallery. Yeah. And the gallery hangs it for however long. And then, you know, at some point, if it doesn't sell, they give it back to me. And then I maybe collect up 10 pieces and then go to Harry's bar and do like a swap out oh, of the okay. of the wall there, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I want to be looking for more opportunities and stuff like that. But for, for right now, my goal is to just be productive through the gallery and then from the gallery to Harry's yeah, and then from Harry's to a bargain bin.
0: Do you, do you, if, do you, will, will you create art, commissioned art? So if someone has a picture that they mm-hmm. want something created, yeah, will you do that? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I, I've, I've done that. Uh, the last commission piece that I did was, um, it was a picture, it was kind of a cool picture of um, four guys in baseball jerseys with numbers on the back. Mm -hmm. It was a picture from the back as they're standing uh, like in front of a chain-link fence looking out onto a baseball diamond. Oh, that's cool. And I made it out of The Stranger. Yeah. It turned out really good. I was super happy with it. Yeah. The client was happy. So, yeah, I would definitely entertain uh, commissions.
0: So if someone's listening and they want a piece (laughs) of art created... Mm -hmm. There's probably at least two things. If someone's listening and they're at an art gallery outside of <laughs> Seattle and they want commissioned art, or they want art.
1: Mm. Oh, I can I can do commissions while I'm or, hanging out in yeah, the gallery. Not, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, I,
0: I phrase that um, uh, poorly. So if someone is out in a gallery outside of Seattle and they're interested in your art, pause. Or uh, someone wants commissioned art, Anywhere in the world, mm-hmm. Seattle or outside of Seattle, mm-hmm. how do they get in touch with you?
1: Or, or the universe? Or the universe? Yeah, yeah I'm, yeah. I'm like someone
0: in the moon on the moon, someone on Mars. I'm branching out. You're you're yeah. going you're going global. <laughs> you're going to the to the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So how do they? How do they get in touch with you? Um, yeah, how do they get in touch? With
1: you? Um, it through my email address, okay. which is uh, Seattle two five two at gmail.com. dot Okay. Um, and I work off of photographs, like I was mentioning, and I'm uh, pretty flexible in terms of what photographs I can use, but it's best if you know, there's good lighting in the picture. And you know, okay. it, it's not like, uh, it, there just has to be good contrast. So the, the more like, white whites and black blacks mm-hmm. in the picture, the better off. Okay. So I, I can't do every picture, but certainly the majority.
0: OK. Uh, and then your website?
1: Is yeah, so uh, your yeah, it's my name, Joshua M O N U T E A U X, which will probably be on the title of this podcast. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll put it in the um, in the show notes. And this was great, man. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Absolutely, and uh, it's inspiring. And uh, I'm excited to uh, continue to watch your watch your star rise man cool man thanks uh, this is great
1: yeah this was fun i really appreciate it i really appreciate the opportunity to come in here and, and do this this was fun absolutely man